1: Hi there, violinist. Thanks for coming across this week's episode of The Violin Podcast. Before we get to the episode, I want to say thank you to our new listeners and returning listeners. My goal is to provide as much value to you as possible to help you become a better violinist through interviews and other product recommendations. That being said, I do want to recommend a product today that I love to use with my beginner students, and that is the Bow Hold Buddy by think for strings It's an amazing tool that helps fix straight pinkies and banana thumbs. Teachers, you know what I'm talking about with the banana thumbs. They're treacherous. They come in different colors, and it's easy to install on your bow. It supports a curved pinky and also supports all fingers of the right hand. Please visit our website at violinpodcast.com slash products to learn more about the Bow Hold Buddy today. And you could also learn about the other products that we recommend on the Violin Podcast. Again, violinpodcast.com products. Welcome to the violin Podcast, where we have conversations with violinists from around the world. I'm your host, Eric Mugala. Thank you for joining us today. If you're new to the podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. My guest today is a violinist from Ottawa, Canada, who has studied with Itzhak Perlman, Pinka Zuckerman, and Anne Sophie Mutter. He has won numerous awards and has created cross collaborative projects bringing researchers, musicians, and doctors together. Please let me welcome Adrian and Antoine. Adrian, so nice to. Um, have you on the Violin Podcast. And I'm actually really honored that you're on the podcast today because um, you're just such an inspirational figure in the music world. How are you doing today?
0: I am all right. Thank you for having me, Eric. And then our personal connection is I used to do uh, some sectionals with the uh, Boston Phil Youth Orchestra. And I remember uh, doing Mahler Two and and Laval's And it was a lot of fun to to see you then, and to see where you are now, doing this wonderful podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I remember those days with the when we did have sectionals and when we were all in person. Feels like forever ago, um, but yeah, I remember. I remember that year that we had a lot of sectionals for those two pieces. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the uh, BPYO, it's an orchestra that's compilated of young musicians to um, undergrad music majors so it's you have a wide variety of um ages in that group and i remember uh i was staying partners with like a 14 year old violinist who was, like went to nec eventually it was it was incredible how music is like that especially in that group but um do you do you are you doing any sectionals right now like while we've been online and virtual have you had any experience doing these uh sectionals
0: So I currently chair the music department at Milton Academy and run an orchestral program there. And definitely sectionals are a a little bit of an art to try to unfold in a virtual setting. We've tried using uh, cloud-based platforms like Soundtrap for instance. The funny thing is, is that because we have so many people logging on, to like one soundtrack project at the same time. I think we've overloaded their server and it just completely crashed. Oh, no kidding, so okay. So I, I don't know if we wrote the website or not, but that's sort of like what we've been trying to use, Technology uh, technology sort of that intermediary. But the, the main thing is really just for everyone to continue finding a connection with one another and hopefully just find different ways that we can leverage these tools to uh, hear every voice and, and also amplify their self-expression.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think that's a great segue into the MI program because you're. Um, I read a little bit about the MI program, and I feel like it's still in its beta phase. You're still trying to work out the kinks and trying to still get it organized for like a, an official launch. I think twenty twenty two. Am I correct? So uh, talk a little bit about the MI program and w- what what your goals are with it.
0: Sure. The, the MI program stands for Music Inclusion Program, and this was a bit of a or it always has been a dream of mine ever since I made the segue into education. So I started off in more of the performance world after I finished my master's and decided that working with young people, especially, and and within the context of disability would be so important to use my gifts in a way that really affected and transformed the world. Just as much as music transformed my life as well. So, I was up in toronto canada uh, about 2010 or so and i was visiting a rehabilitation center that works with kids who have various disabilities and visited their music therapy department in particular and they were using a piece of technology called the virtual music instrument and this is essentially a computer-based software that utilizes a webcam And then in this sort of environment, uh, digital shapes can be created uh, so that when someone hits this shape in the screen or virtual or virtual shape, uh, it creates some type of musical sound. And this was great for uh, kids who didn't have a lot of flexibility in their muscles, for instance, uh, and they needed to like do some type of exercise, say for instance, like reaching to like the corner of a screen if you put a musical shape up at that corner and it makes some type of musical sound, then it would add to that engagement and allow the student or the young kid to be motivated to continue trying to do that type of motion. Uh, So seeing tools like that really galvanized encouraged me to think, well, what can we do to use technology like this in not only a therapeutic context, but also an educative and performance one, uh, point of view. So I ended up <laughs> turning this into sort of a master's project. And I went down to Boston where I met you and, and studied education for a couple years, uh, researching various ways that technology like this could be unfolded within uh, school music curriculum. Uh, so, did a lot of the research, and that was really when the Dream for the Music Inclusion program started. And uh, at the same time, after I graduated, I uh, directed a program, uh, an El Sistema program in Boston uh, called the Conservatory Lab Charter School. And it was a musical program that really incorporated after school and in school musical instrument learning uh to be able to not only build community uh create self-agency for the students but also just be part of a holistic education for a child so directing a program like that and sort of having a regular music program two hours a day for about 300 400 kids sort of led me to thinking well maybe i can start my own program sort of in an el sistema based model where it really is about social cohesion and and thinking about music as an inherent civil right and also thinking about my background researching these tools and instruments and figuring out a way that we could do this in an after-school type program Uh, so we started a couple years ago i drafted a proposal uh, to sort of explore sort of the step zero to try to figure out what we could do to make this a reality. So I ended up partnering with a inclusion elementary school in Dorchester called the Henderson Inclusion School. About 30% of their kids are on an IEP, an individualized education program, uh, in order for them to access certain parts of their general uh, curriculum. So all that being said is that we created a lottery system within that school and created a very small after-school pilot program. It's about 15 kids and a third of them, actually, probably closer to half of them had some form of disability, ranging from cerebral palsy, hearing, vision impairment. Uh, we had a few kids on the autism spectrum. We had a student who had Landau, uh kleffler syndrome, which is essentially a condition where a student becomes more and more aphasic and isn't able to speak. So using uh, technology as an intermediary, combined with traditional instruments, we sort of just put everyone in the same room to see what would happen. We brought in tel- talented educators who are sort of used to working within this El Sistema uh, context of delivering group instruction. And, and we uh, galvanized volunteers to come in and sort of went through sort of a grassroots first year Uh, to see if we could make something happen. And we did, which was awesome. Uh, We started, of course, in person in uh, the fall of 2019, and uh, we had to go virtual in March of 2020, but we were able to get the students to a point where they graduated at the beginning of the summer. And and now we're uh, sort of in phase two, where we're virtual, but, uh, still sort of going strong and keeping that community together. Uh, the instruments right now are string based or we have sort of this section that we call the percussion section uh, and it could incorporate a variety of different tools uh, so that a student with a moderate to severe disability can still have access into playing a part in, in the orchestra. Uh, so the idea is that we are constantly iterating We have uh, a lot of meetings up front before we actually have our classrooms, a lot of deconstruction of what happens afterwards to really figure out how we can properly uh, deliver our pedagogy, how we can modify our tools or instruments to be able to create a greater degree of engagement. And just be in this position where uh, if we're focusing on an individual student, uh everyone benefits from that as well and I think it is very much an El Sistema model and Jose Antonio Breu the founder of El Sistema uh, always used to say that in an orchestra it's sort of like a model of an ideal society and the idea is that you can contribute more or you can contribute less based on whatever you have but whatever you're giving is all that you can So say for instance, we have a child who has cerebral palsy is playing a couple notes uh, on the xylophone, for instance, as everyone's sort of working together. Those are integral parts of being able to create this cohesive harmony that I believe allows not only the participant in the MI program to feel like they matter and they have a voice, but at the same time, their collective voices come together and express something that is powerful uh, and sort of a a beacon for where we see society uh, can be when we incorporate diverse voices into our craft. So we're very fortunate to continue making it happen through this uh, pandemic. And and yes, we are in sort of this phase where we really want to officially launch into some more uh, ambitious work and and we'll see what happens over the coming months. I'm very excited.
1: I mean, enough said, we should just end the podcast right here. That's it. <laughs> and just, uh, no, that's wonderful. Um, and thank you for sharing your story about the MI program, because when I was reading about it, it's very similar to the work that I do in the other um, a couple hours west of uh, Boston. And yeah, Elsa's was all about this inclusion and the community based um, music. And something that I, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about entrepreneurial spirit and music business, but it was pretty much like a startup, what you did. You had an idea. You wanted to run an experiment, see if the experiment worked, and it did. And then um, you're trying to solve a problem, which is bringing music to people with disabilities, uh, BIPOC um, musicians, and it's just fabulous what you're doing. And I, and I wish you lots of success in that Um Talk about the experience, about how you were able to use your experience um, with your, with your disability, and how you're able to uh, translate into and uh, translate that into the classroom. Uh, can you share your thoughts on on your upbringing? Was there ever any um, kind of technological advances as you were when you were growing up, and how and how has your experience been since then?
0: Sure. Well, as Uh, Some people may or may not know I was born without a right hand and I think that from the very beginning I was very fortunate to have uh, family, especially to be that supporting core, uh, believing in uh, sort of my capacity to do whatever I wanted to do, especially when I set my mind to it. Uh, I was in fifth grade when our music teacher all wanted us to try to play a musical instrument. And I remember it was going to be this big reveal and surprise where there'd be this big box and everyone opened. It's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. And I remember this box opened and I was like, oh, and it was the recorder. And uh, it looked interesting enough, but I noticed that there were uh, more holes on the tubing than what I'd actually be able to play. So I didn't really it would be an accessible instrument even though the recorder was accessible in different ways, I mean the cost point was relatively low, Uh, it's pretty quick for most people to to get a hang of it and I remember the teacher that I had at the time felt really bad because I don't think that was something that she considered and tried to find like different ways of engaging me within the music classroom, it could be like writing music, uh, engaging in theory, sort of being there to support my classmates in different ways. And, and while I was included, or I had access into the classroom, uh, I was didn't really feel socially included. So my parents started looking for different options. Uh, the trumpet was one of them where you can hold it with one hand, but it wasn't my favorite sound. and. And then the voice was another possibility, but I didn't really have a great voice, so. What are you I talking about? A... You have a
1: great voice. <laughs> oh, just by, I I, I'm remember? sure the listeners on the Violent Podcast are like, you know what? He has a nice, warm voice. I think he could uh-huh. he could have passed as a singer.
0: <laughs> oh well, too bad. Well, maybe I just didn't have the confidence Shucks. when I was coming. back. I know, and we're talking about you know <laughs> overcoming all these odds, right? And really doing what you love to do. So I would probably say that it wasn't something that was a passion from the very beginning. So I remember uh, watching Sesame Street, and there was a video clip of Ischak Perlman, the great uh, Israeli American virtuoso playing on stage. He struggles to get up on stage because he had the crutches and the leg braces due to polio. He picks up the instrument and then just plays brilliantly, as uh, many people know. And I think that was the first time that I had seen someone with an instrument with a classical background sort of have this identity uh, of a physical disability, just like myself, and really didn't seem to have that same identity when they were on stage. Pick up an instrument and all of a sudden you don't see anything that is what one would call a disability on the violin, for instance. So it really inspired me not only because of that representation, but the violin was such a beautiful instrument as well. So I told my parents, I would love to have uh, this one. And my parents said, "Okay, well, we'll see what happens. And uh, they bought me a small violin. and, And then we started looking for teachers. One was willing to take me on, fortunately, and Uh, We started off with a lot of pizzicato exercises, and I remember, actually, I have my instrument here that we like left hand pits like twinkle, twinkle. And then we went to the next song.
1: Oh, that's wonderful! All Suzuki.
0: Uh, So already learning a relatively virtuoso technique, and maybe in retrospect, the pedagogy was very sound because I was just working on the left hand alone and building strength, playing in different positions right away, and I was very lucky to not have to worry about sort of the bow, uh, at least up until that point. Uh, So I actually got through probably half of book one, uh, just left-hand pitching it. And then I went to a rehabilitation center, the same one I was just mentioning earlier, it's called the Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. It's a very long name, but great organization where I worked with a prosthetist uh, who created a device for me to be able to uh, hold the bow. It's called a spatula and uh, it has a plaster cast. I'm sort of gonna hold this in the mic and you can hear that. And then a piece of Velcro here that uh, keeps everything in place. And then on the bow itself, there's a aluminum tube that goes through the bow uh, so that it allows the spatula and the uh, bow to connect together. And essentially I would just put it on and then uh, use primarily my shoulder. And then I was able to sort of eventually just even play that twinkle in a way that was just thrilling in a way because uh i think i was very lucky i already had the left hand relatively figured out and just having a piece of music sort of come to life like that was a little bit of a miracle and sometimes just having those initial moments of success can be galvanizing enough to sort of propel an entire journey on an instrument right Uh, it was
1: it was a it was a complete game changer as to what was possible
0: Exactly. And when you were talking about sort of the development of technology, I mean, I don't think this would have been possible um, many years ago, not necessarily because the tools weren't out there. I mean, we had cast for years, Velcro for years, aluminum uh, for years. It was really just the belief that something was possible and to just try. Uh, something not necessarily based on what was practical because otherwise I would be still playing the trumpet, uh, but really going first for what engages you, what do you love about a particular sound? Uh, And I really think that is important as music educators, as a quick aside, to really go to where the student is first, not saying that, oh, you're physically designed to uh, play this particular instrument. It really should start from where the child uh, think something sounds great and beautiful because there are so many different ways that we're built. Uh, if you have a profound love or passion for what you do, uh, that will engender the excellence more so than having something that practically uh, fits well. Uh, I think human beings are tremendously determined in that sense. Uh, and it's something that I remember even to this day as we're sort of continuing work with the MI program it really is putting people in the same room going to where their engagement is and then finding the technology uh to be able to support them so whenever we're talking about innovation in this sector it really starts with the human first then you go to the music part of it and then you go to the technology part of it not the other way around sometimes we think oh let's we have this really cool tool that we've designed in a vacuum and then we're gonna try to make it musical and then just place it within a context your phone can use. Right, at that,
1: right I agree. Yeah, at that sense, you're, you're catering to the specific person first. You know, you have to deal with the person's mind, get the mentality and the psychology there first, then get them the interest in music, and then try to figure out a way. I think that's, yeah, I, I would agree with that too.
0: Yeah, and I think it's one, one of those things where uh, we do feel as if technology is... Um, sometimes creating more distance between all of us and and my hope is that sort of at this intersection of disability uh, education and and music and technology in general that we're really humanizing people in a way and giving them tools to be able to connect in a deeper um, more expressive way towards one another and hopefully as a group uh, collectively as well
1: well, you definitely mentioned a couple of topics that I definitely want to dive into, and that is the the sacred role of a teacher, right? Because you're you're talking about going to the student, you know, reaching out to the students. I think that's also a big part of El Sistema that we go to the students and try to meet the needs of the families and the students. Um, has it been has that been the case with uh, when you're introducing the MI program in your community? Was that pretty much the same idea or were people flocking to the MI program wanting to be a part of it? What, what was that like?
0: Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned sort of the importance of family within a community. I think that whenever we're working in education the parents play a vital part in being able to provide advocacy for their students, or sorry, for their kids. As students, uh, they're the ones, uh, the parents are the ones that we really get the most information from because they know their child uh, the best. Uh so within the context of the MI program, we just like any education program, probably the one you're involved with as well, communicating to parents is so important to really see uh what the background is and and what supports are place for the child to be able to engage with music, what additional supports might be useful for them if we were to provide them, and, and really just keeping in touch with them and and keeping them. Uh, up to date with whatever we're doing in the classroom. It's so important. I mean, because in the end, we uh, we started off three days a week after school, but if they take their instruments home for an entire week, the majority of their time with their instrument is going to be spent at home. And especially now in this virtual environment, hundred percent sometimes is sort of where uh, the parents are really interfacing with their kids directly. Uh, So to get to your question about sort of uh, the community and how we sort of galvanized sort of people to enroll, I think we were very lucky. We started off with a lottery system uh, and uh, the people or the parents of the Henderson community, they were all very excited to be able to uh, take part in this opportunity. And, And my hope is that even if we are a small program, but the way that we continue to scale is scaling manageably and sort of increasing uh, small uh, enrollments at a time, but also to provide a set of best practices or an example of best practices that might work within our sphere so that we can influence other music educators around the country and hopefully around the world to engage in similar practice. Uh, so just like as I saw uh, Ishak Proman uh playing the violin and that sort of galvanized me to uh continue this journey with the instrument to this day i think it's the same to be able to provide uh representation of a program that includes uh students of all ability backgrounds and and saying that this is possible uh and that sometimes there's no secret formula to it than just getting started and really sort of coming or driving your entire program based on the belief that people deserve access and inclusion in the arts and that our kids and our students that are involved in this practice are going to help us define what arts and culture look like for future generations so as you just mentioned like education is very much a, a sacred space it is one where i do feel like we are the result of of incredible educators and grown us in our lives to sort of have brought us to this day, and it is like uh, almost ritualistic to like now pass that to another generation and to think of where they'll be when they're our age, for instance. And, and it's also
1: very exciting to know that the, that the future is in really good hands if we're providing them with as much opportunity as possible. And I know that what you said about the diversity, I think in my experience, and um, I hope you can share your thoughts on this too, that the, the the more diverse an organization is or the more diverse a group of people you have like in a space, the stronger you'll be because you have more voices from different backgrounds. And uh, that's something that I learned within the last, you know, year and a half, you know, this, with all the shed, you know, shedding the light on um, you know with the black lives matter movement and the and the and the movement that has brought to the entire world right it it goes to show that if you have a cause that you believe in then everything will kind of take care of itself i think and what what you're saying about the about the point of like music education to me it's like you know music for me is like a very unique theme because I have a bunch of teacher friends, like public schools. And we have a bunch of conversations. Like I have a very good friend who is a Spanish teacher in a high school. And we kind of compare like the teaching styles and like, it's like, oh, well, I have to do this in a classroom and I have a curriculum and I, it's very one, one directional kind of teaching where for me, I believe that with, and I hope you can share your thoughts on this too, with the, um, with music, I like to make it a more conversation-based learning uh, where I try to challenge a student to kind of think for themselves. Um, do, you, do you do that in your private lessons or in your curriculum where it's more of like a conversation-based kind of curriculum where it's not completely one-directional?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, you're explaining the phenomenon of like teaching to a student versus teaching at a student. <laughs> uh, right, I yeah, think there- definitely. Yeah, I think that within... uh private lesson context, it's easier to sort of get that conversational aspect. I think in larger groups, uh, there is an art form to be able to be able to manage everyone's voices in a way that not only are you having sort of this give and take between every individual student, but the students are also connecting to each other and engaging in specific ways too. Uh, And especially in music education, it's all about communication and expressing your voice, whether it be through your instrument, whether it be verbally, whether it be uh, something that you write down. I think that uh, to do it within sort of like a larger environment requires a set of structures that um, have to be very thoughtful and and planned out by uh, an educator team or, or even a single educator. So what we've done actually is uh, we leverage a system called Universal Design of Learning, it's uh, UDL for short. And this was a neuropsychological framework that was developed out of Harvard uh, by uh, David Rose, uh, who I had the honor of taking a few of his classes when I was a student there. And uh, the idea is that uh, we can see learning in three distinct ways. Uh, it's in representation of learning, like your materials, for instance, it could be sheet music. Uh, we have various ways that a student can uh, express that type of learning, so it could be verbal, it could be written, it could be musical, and then there are uh, various ways that uh, students engage, uh, and this is sort of the emotional aspect with uh, a piece of music, for instance, or the material at hand. So the idea is, uh, within this sort of UDL design, is that you have multiple modes of representation built in, multiple modes of expression, and then multiple modes of engagement. And the general philosophy is that it sort of works upon these sort of very um, distinct, but also interconnected parts of the brain. And at the same time, it sort of speaks to uh, encompassing diversity from the ground up. Uh, If you attend to the margins, your gifted students, and then your students who uh, have specific challenges due to, for instance, a disability, uh, you're able to encompass everyone in between. Uh, So the idea is that you cannot teach to the average student because there is no average student. There's no like conglomerate of all these statistics. And then that's like dead center. Because if you try to do that, you actually teach no one in the end. It's a mythical student. Yeah, so uh, if, so I really if you, that if, you
1: well. if you try to care to everyone, you reach nobody. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's I guess it's that's, like music. It's like yeah. music,
0: right? It's like if you try to create music that pleases everyone, it says nothing to any specific person.
1: I agree. I think I think what you're also talking about with the UDL system it's 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 similar to multiple intelligence theory have you uh you know about multiple intelligence I, re- I remember learning about it like like about 10 years ago and uh um for the audience who doesn't know what multiple intelligence is is where um you don't categor you know you don't categorize a student in like five or seven d- different learning aspects you have that's good at math and science one that's good in reading and writing and then you have some um then you have a student that's learning more so in like arts and culture as what you're describing too. I think it's, um, I think it's impediment in you know, violent education, music education that we just, we continue to cater to the student and, uh, something that a mentor shared with me. And I'm sure you can relate that if the first, if the student doesn't leave the classroom feeling successful, then we failed as teachers. And, um, I think that's also why I said that like the role of a music educator and a violinist is such a sacred role because you want to make sure that you're providing a lot of value and a lot of good um, opportunities for the kids. Um, But speaking of violin, because I feel like we haven't talked about uh, violin except for, you know, your bow and the way you, the way you hold your bow. But can you talk about the instrument that you play on? Because we haven't really talked about that yet.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm, very fortunate here to have a relatively old instrument uh it was built in 1820 by a french maker called nick uh sorry i was going to say uh nicholas vium it's a uh, john baptiste Viom. i have to look in the label for john
1: baptiste vium yeah
0: Baptiste oh my gosh look at that um Don't and, worry, we'll, yeah, it's we'll, it's the listeners
1: course. and i will forgive you it's okay
0: <laughs> thank you yes yeah, so it has a one piece back uh tiger stripes, it really uh, just gleams in, in the light. Uh, has a nice front.
1: brownish varnish to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it has a very, um, how can I say, sweet and sort of no string is dominant over another in, in a good way. It like, really provides like across the spectrum this really uh, nice roundness uh, to the sound. And, and I've been playing this for about... I would say almost 10 years now. I was very lucky to find uh, uh, someone who owned this instrument, who wanted it to be played. And I I continue just developing a a relationship with it. Uh, It is, uh, as you sort of mentioned again, sort of this sacred sort of relationship that you have, uh, that you want to be able to translate in a way that um, does some good in the world. So beautiful instrument, uh, beautiful music, and of course the human sort of interacts uh, in between. And yeah, I'm just lucky every single day to open the case and and see a work of art uh, like this in front of me to motivate myself to play great music.
1: Are the recordings on your website played on this, Vion? Yes. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to Adrian's playing, it is amazing. I was really just touched by your brahm second sonata recording mm. it's just you have this one you you just maximize every decibel of sound out of your instrument um can you t- since you have a very specific technique can you talk a little bit of how you approach sound because it's very not a traditional way in which you d- um do otherwise you know with person with two hands
0: yeah, so I'm just going to put on my spatula here, if you can hear that, uh, and just sort of demonstrate as I'm looking at the instrument. So, like, I can never draw a straight bow because I don't have a wrist, and uh, what ends up happening is at the extremes of the bow, uh, for instance, if I'm, like, near the tip uh, right here, or near the frog, I'll play the same thing, uh, those are not straight bows at all, and right. I found that instead of sort of treating this as an impediment uh to sort of use sort of those nether regions of the uh bow to create certain types of color so if you have a a bit of a crooked bow that sort of goes over the fingerboard there is a certain degree of instability to the sound that can be quite appealing at times and i sort of Maximize, as you were just saying, sort of my bow changes and and sort of understand within a musical context of a phrase uh, where I need to be in order to create a particular sound. So if I'm starting, uh, for instance, like really from the frog and really close to the uh, to the bridge. and then sort of fade out uh, to the tip, that's sort of one type of sound. So it's really understanding the mechanics of the bow and p- mechanics of myself, and then interfacing that with musical ideas that's so important to me.
1: When you just played um, that third position E, it sounded like a beautiful shimmer. If I close my eyes and hear that, and I'm sure the audi- the, the listeners can resonate this with me, I, I would never have thought that you know you you had the the spatula on on your bow um is is it and i i just want to ask because i'm curious um do you use a lot of like your your shoulder i mean obviously you do but like a lot of your lap muscles to kind of um, Im- implicate more weight onto the um onto the bow because you like you say you don't have a wrist you can't really what we say press down or add pressure to any fingers so
0: yeah so that's interesting it just goes to show that uh sometimes the weight just comes from the natural sort of gravity and also just the the arm weight as well there's less uh you would think there would be less nuance if you can't sort of use your fingers to sort of articulate uh, weight differences but i just use a different muscle and i've just sensitized myself to be able to use a larger muscle in a more delicate way and I think my teachers always said this to me is like the most important appendages that you have as a violinist are not your hands, but your ears and mm-hmm. using your ears to guide your sound. So I've spent a lifetime now uh, sort of developing a sense of where I believe my sound needs to be and then using my technique and developing musculature and physicality that sort of reflects that. Um, so it's interesting because you would think that if you're using sort of less fine, uh, how can I say, fine motor uh, muscles, like your fingers, for instance, and just using your shoulder or your arm, that you would have a bit more of a um, unrefined sound. And I would say that that's only because of lack of imagination, at least on my end. <laughs> okay. I would to only just play metaforte, forte all the time. Uh, so yeah it takes time and it also like getting back to education requires a certain type of pedagogy that allows um me for instance really start from the high concepts first of where i want to be rather than trying to sort of level one level two level three start at level a million and then just work way back down
1: (laughs) i've always found that even from a very young age um I i had a conductor back in high school who um god bless his soul he's a um, music educator, retired high school conductor, and he talked about, you know, when you go to the Chicago symphony, cause I was from, I'm from Chicago and, you know, when you go to the Chicago symphony, anybody can play forte. It's when the orchestras play piano when it's really special. And, you know, from, you, know you practice something enough times where you, you know, you mastered that technique, right. And something that works for you may not work for something else for somebody else, And uh, I just find that interesting with the violin technique, even though they're like, we've figured out like throughout 400 years or so of tradition of like, how can I make a sound out of this wooden box? You know, we're still constantly evolving and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't through, you know, research and uh, technology. Um, Now, I want to geek out with you a little bit because I know I mentioned Brahms and I love Brahms, but are there any other composers that you love playing um, besides like Brahms, I think I heard uh, a Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto recording. What are some of your, um, some, what are some pieces that you really, um, connect with?
0: Sure. So I try to keep a, a wide range of, of, pieces ongoing all the time. I think that my constants are always like the box, sonatas and partitas. Those are always a, a great reflection a mirror of where, um, I am in my life and it's so interesting like to play the same movement from like a Bach sonata for instance and and hear like something very different uh, just coming out of the instrument Uh, i've been exploring uh, a lot of repertoire of composers from sort of a wider range of of backgrounds uh, female composers or. Super interesting for me to explore now. Amy Beach was uh, one that I explored a while back. Florence Price. Love
1: Amy Beach. Amy Beach is oh, great. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Amanda Meyer Rankin, who's another sort of like contemporary of Mendelssohn. So like exploring that range of, of classical music. And I would like to be able to eventually explore, as an artist at least, musicians, and composers who have backgrounds in disability as well. And I don't know how much is there that's sort of like, sort of out in the open, at least in the classical world when we talk about disability, because I think there are obviously visual disabilities, like everyone will see that I'm missing an arm for instance, but there are a lot of invisible disabilities that are out there too. And I do feel like to a certain extent, the classical music world is a little bit normalized under this idea that in order to be excellent, you have to be like, everyone else. And this is a grand generalization, of course, because there are always exceptions. But I do wonder to what extent there are like high performing artists who are working in the major symphony orchestras that actually do have a disability, but you just don't know because they don't really centralize that in their identity. And it's the same with me too. It's it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to be considered disabled as like sort of a special pity case. Yet, at the same time, how do I leverage this identity in a way that actually provo- or provides a unique vantage point or a way of seeing the world that also encompasses this idea of excellence? Uh, so I would love to be able to start exploring composers and really just sort of seeing around the classical music world where sort of disability lies uh, within the framework of our identities, because as we were just talking, about before, we're really engaged now more than ever in DEI work of like really uh, thinking about ways that we provide access and inclusion for people of diverse uh, ethnic, racial backgrounds, social economic status, and I think included in this conversation needs to be one of disability, because. When, as you were just saying before, the more that we really sort of fold into sort of our general idea of like what it means to be different, the more that we understand our common bonds of what it means to be human.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I resonate with what you're saying there, you know, the because of the Black Lives Matter movement, we are emphasizing more the BIPOC composers and perform, performers. And this is just the beginning and we hope to continue this trend. And um you know, hopefully that we can continue shedding light on composers and musicians with disabilities. And if um, if you're listening to the Violin Podcast, you know we would love to hear your thoughts. Um, please visit our website to contact us if you know of any uh, composers or any kind of research articles that you ha- you have found through your own research or something that you've heard just by passing or having a conversation. Um, you know, the Violin-, Violin Podcast is just a platform where we just begin the conversation and then we continue to extend that work um, in, into the music world. So, um, Adrian, it's such, it's been such a pleasure. I'm, uh, talking to you and I don't want to take more of your time, but, uh, for someone who's listening to the violin podcast, say that they feel they they're having some limiting beliefs on starting an instrument or, um, you know, we're also at a time where, you know, our listenership is about to enter college and we're going into some uncharted territories with the with, with what's going on with the pandemic. Can you offer some advice to anybody who's listening um, on your role as an artist and a, as a violinist today?
0: So I think that when we think about classical music and sort of violin playing in particular, uh, we need to do a better job of really defining what talent is. Uh, because I think that a lot of the times we think talent Uh, And like playing a complex instrument like the violin, these are sort of necessary sort of intersections that you need in order to uh, do something excellent with such a simple, deceptively simple, but very complex instrument. So for me, talent is not about like how you're built. Some people say, oh, you have the, the reflexes or the violin or you have like the the brain and like the mental capacity to be able to do something complicated like the violin. Uh, I think my case in particular, if you needed to be built a certain way to play the violin, well, here I am. I don't have an arm and there's so many other people who don't fit the physical description of a ideal violinist and are able to create amazing art. Uh, so for me talent is really not about those endowed gifts but the gifts that are placed upon ourselves by belief people who have believed in us our support networks our families our educators our teachers and also the gifts that you're willing to share uh, through your passion and through uh your unique vantage point to be able to make the world a more beautiful place Uh, so really to think about the only limiting factor that we have in Tackling and, and achieving amazing things with an instrument are just our conceptions of what we believe is possible. And I think that I hope that my career is represented sort of an aspect of possibility, as much as I hope that their new research, so many other artists with disabilities or people from diverse ability backgrounds who have achieved amazing and incredible things with their art form to understand that uh, possibility. Uh, exists in reality for these people, and it's something that we can achieve too with the same mindsets and beliefs.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Adrian and Antoine. You can find uh, you can learn more about Adrian at his website at adrianandantoine.com, and of course, I'll leave. Uh, link in the podcast notes for you to learn a little bit more about what he's doing with the mi program and uh, a couple of his recordings which are just phenomenal i totally recommend listening to them if you have a moment uh adrian i really honor this uh this conversation with you really really appreciate it. and i hope that we uh, continue to stay in touch and um that we you know form a project of our own and uh, based on what based on what we've discussed today so uh thank you again for coming on the podcast
0: Thank you, it's a pleasure.